Let's go. Welcome to the Loans on Demand podcast, the show where we flip the real estate status quo on its head and put loan officers into the driver's seat. We, we, we give you all the tools, strategies, resources, and mindset needed to modernize your mortgage business and thrive. And my name is Luke Shankula, aka Longform Luke, and this is the Loans on Demand podcast. I hope you're ready for the Loans on Demand podcast. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Loans On Demand podcast, the show where we help loan officers flip the status quo on real estate agents. And I'm so excited because today we have Jason Mark Campbell. And Jason is the author of Selling With Love. And he is on a mission to inspire small business owners with sales reluctance to embrace it as a beautiful activity that transforms lives. He's done a whole bunch of other things, um, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. He's also a host of a podcast also called Selling With Love. So without further ado, What's going on, Jason? Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Luke. Uh, glad to have everybody here. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm hoping we're going to change, uh, flip the script, as you say, on a few mindsets around sales for some of your audience. So I'm very excited for that. Awesome, man. Awesome, man. This is a very, uh, very real topic here and a very real uh, conversation that we need to have in regards to sales. Because I think so many times, you know, people get, people get, caught up in, in this idea that sales is a bad thing. Sales is a dirty word. Um, and, and I think we, we need to flip that a little bit here. So before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Uh, tell us about kind of like where you are and, and kind of where, what the road to where you are today, right? I know it probably hasn't always been easy. Uh, I'm a sucker for those come up stories. So tell us a little bit about yourself, man. So let's go back to the day I was born. And <laughs> no, what I will say though, is something that most of my audience, because I, I've worked and, and kind of build my platform mostly within the space of personal growth education. I worked for a company that's called Mind Valley, and they do online education around productivity, spirituality, mindfulness, and relationships. And I was one of their lead launch persons there, uh, ran their events team, did a whole lot of different things, including launching uh, the founder's very first book. And had a lot of fun there, learned a ton of stuff, but I kind of came in with an inherent, uh, call it passion for sales. It was quite funny. Most of the people there were just kind of uh, bewildered by how much I loved selling. They were like, yeah, Jason, he's that sales guy. He's always selling. He's always feeling good about (laughs) sales. And that's not typical. Like most people thought I was weird because of it. And, you know, going back even further where most people aren't very aware of the fact that I used to work in real estate. Um, I actually used to be an inside sales agent for a real estate company, which basically means I had to work on the phones day in, day out, book appointments, right? And that was one of the best things that's ever happened in my late 20s. Getting over that fear of picking up the phone, being put in an environment where you have such a rapid kind of iteration and repetition when it comes to doing telephone, because in five minutes, you have an outcome. And so you get to measure, you get to monitor, particularly what happens inside, um, which is a lot of the insecurities come up in those conversations. Mm -hmm. But the the earliest story that I do love to, to share about, you know, how do I end up being the guy talking about selling with love is we mostly have this kind of story about sales that's in our head, what it can look like a stereotypical salesperson, we could say. And that's often reinforced by media. And 
most of those stereotypes are not that great. Like you'll think about you know, like used car salesman or, or like the Wolf of Wall Street kind of things. And most people, although you could be like, oh, Wolf of Wall Street, that's a fun movie and entertaining, you know, depiction of uh, Jordan Belfer's life. But most of us are probably trying to come into business by doing good, having impact, not screwing people over. It's not like sure. the first objective of why you started as a loan officer, I'm sure. Um, and in my case, those were not my core memories, you could say, around sales. I just remember in high school, they made you do a charity run. And by doing so, they made you sell these like chocolate covered almonds. And, you know, before we were so health conscious, everybody loved chocolate. Everybody liked chocolate covered almonds. Unless you had allergies, then I felt bad for you. But uh, in this case, I had to go door to door and start selling them to my neighbors. And it was a very simple sale. It was a $2 toonie. As a Canadian, we call them toonies. Yeah, you get, get two bucks for a box of chocolate, right? So I'm going door to door. Hey, would you guys like some chocolate? And people are like, oh, chocolate's good. This is nice. Charity, perfect. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. But the, the most exciting part, was I think the fifth or seventh door that I went knock at, the, the mother's like, oh, let me get my daughter to come downstairs, see if she wants some. And this beautiful girl came down the stairs. And I didn't know her because she was going to English school. I was going to French school and we didn't know who was going where. And then my neighbor ends up being you know, this amazing, beautiful woman ends up being my first girlfriend I've ever had after selling her chocolate. So yeah, selling was definitely anchored with love right there. And that probably has been an ethos that I carried all the way to now. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great story. Uh, and and it's, it's interesting that you uh, talked about being a, an ISA, right? An inside sales agent and something that loan officers should be very aware of. Um, and, and it's funny because we do find that that call center LOs, I mean, you know, we, we run a marketing agency and call center LOs tend to kind of develop those skills so much faster. And they come in with a, a different level of skills when it comes to sales, persuasion, uh, having conversations with people that are strangers um, in, 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 in sort of stark contrast to the traditional way that loan officers are taught to get business, right? Most people are referral only, and that's kind of their whole uh, persona, not persona, but the whole way they, they generate business. And so when you translate to doing things like buying leads or having cold conversations with cold prospects, it doesn't translate well, right? Because there's not that inherent uh, built-in trust from a referral. Um, so you have to generate that trust. You have to generate the no like, and trust, right? Everybody talks about that, but, but you know, how do you develop that? Um, and, and there's, uh, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, repetitions. So he did the repetitions as an inside sales agent. And I think that's huge for people to understand that, you know, no one gets good at something doing it once or twice or three times. You got to do it hundreds of times, thousands of times in order to get good at it. So I love that that was your foundation really uh, into kind of this world of sales and really, you know, it goes way back. But I think that's probably where you kind of got your chops, huh? Well, I would say it's definitely a place that's gotten me to detach myself from the outcome and taking it so damn personally. Right. right. Because I'll tell you the first call that I made, you'll laugh. So here I was, you know, I was still in university and I went, my sister actually worked for real estate. She was manager for a real estate company. And she was like, I was going to career fairs. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Went to business school. And then I was looking at these management training programs. They all look boring and they all look like they didn't make a lot of money. And I wanted to make <laughs> much more money. And sure. then I, my sister was like, come and see real estate. My boss, I think you'll find him entertaining. He was a very flashy real estate agent guy. And he sold me on saying like, listen, this is even better than being an agent. You're just going to be on the phone and you get a percentage of the commissions, you know, uh, and you just get to stay at home. This is the best job ever. So I was like, 
okay, I don't know. This sounds a lot like cold calling. I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. It's called reverse prospecting. You're contacting leads that already shown interest only to send me to the database of like six month old leads when I first right. started, but details, right. details. So He's like, listen, these people want to hear from you. And there's a script and it's value-based. I was like, all right, whatever, let's give this a try. So I go into the room and I'm like, okay, I'm making my first call. I'm sweating. I'm shaking. I dial the first number and I have this little piece of script in front of me. Person hands like, hello. And I'm like, hi, this is uh, Jason from ABC Real Estate. And I just want to let you know that your request for a list of properties is going to be sent to you via email in the next 24 hours. Is that okay? They're like, uh, yeah, sure. That's fine. Thanks. Click. And they hang up on me and I'm like, ah, I'm like dumbfounded. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I was disturbing this person. They hate me. I'm going to die alone and be rejected from my tribe. This is exactly what's going to happen. Oh my God, <laughs> what am I doing? Like all this craziness started happening, but to make matters worse, it's at that exact moment that the boss decides to walk in the office as I'm like flush red, shaking, sweating. And he's like, are you all right? Like what the hell just happened? And in my head, I feel like I'm dying. Like, I feel like this is painful. And I tell them like, yeah, they hung up on me. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And he's like, listen, I swear that is not how it usually happens. He's laughing because he's like, you just got the best call to have first because everything else is going to be better than that. And as you said, then I made the second call and guess what? I still was shaky and crappy, but I got through the script and it was all right. Then the third one, then the fourth one. I look at some of the best entrepreneurs, uh, people that are building businesses, and a telephone sales background is often next to them. Because once I've done a thousand calls, my energy is just like, all right, I'm trying to reach out to someone else. Maybe they need me, maybe they don't. But if they do need me, I have a script that allows me to best discover if they do potentially need me, even if they don't know it. So let's talk. Let's see. Let's go. Numbers. It's not like I'm I'm doing you know automated scripts in the case that I don't care about the people. I'm being as efficient as possible to reach as many people as possible because I knew that the firm I was representing, they did great real estate services where most are very mediocre as agents. And I know any loan officer can probably vouch to the fact that there's some really <laughs> bad real estate agents, they were actually doing a really good job, very organized, very professional. So I was like, it's my duty to make people understand that by just booking an appointment so they can learn more. And that, as you said, foundation to get over the fear of rejection, to learn about sales and get so excited about it. Man, I I love that. Um, There's there's just something about having to, to do cold calling and things like that that just kind of sets you up for, you know, just for, for a thicker skin, right? I mean, it's, it's probably why, you know, a lot of times you think about like even Mormons, right? They have to go door knocking and things like that and why they're so good at sales and so good at these things. Because like, man, if you have to door knock for so long and get rejected so many times at some point, you're like, well, whatever. And, and I like that you said uh, that, you know, some will, or is that, that saying, some will, some won't, so what? someone's waiting, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, right? But I just, you basically said that right there. But but another thing you touched on that I want to talk about, and I think so many loan officers get so, and, and people in general get so caught up in this, oh, I don't want to use a script. I don't use a script. <laughs> script, script, script's bad, All right? So talk about that. You, you brought up script a couple of times. Um, I'm a big fan of scripts in, in context of, you know, using them as frameworks uh, because, it, you know, you need a replicatable process. But there's so much resistance to people using scripts. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Tell me a little bit about that, man. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I, I, I have to recall an interview that I did recently with um, Benjamin Hardy. I, I got to get his name right. I think I, I forget. Benjamin, he's, he's better known as the UK's worst sales trainer. He's hilarious. And what he was talking about is this idea of being sales professional is the only industry that if you call yourself a professional, you don't even need to act professionally and you can still call yourself a sales professional. But if you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, you go to school, you learn processes, you learn a flow of ways that things need to happen. And then you get the opportunity to call yourself a professional. But in sales, you just you know get a CRM, put on a suit, start making calls. You're already a sales professional with very little training. And if you're an accountant... You're going to be using templates about how to set up your accounts, your ledgers. You're not going to create a brand new thing every time. As a doctor, you're going to follow specific procedure, not being like, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. I don't need a checklist. I don't need you know procedures that ensures the highest level of safety in the way that I operate. And a lawyer will have contract templates. They're not going to create a contract from scratch just because they feel like they're the best lawyer. And so that would be my view when it comes to sales. If you, if you want to be a sales professional or a professional loan officer, the scripts happen to be tools to allow you to replicate success in the areas that you know you can automate. I mean, I love using templates. doesn't mean that I'm a robot. doesn't mean that right. I'm not flexible, but I need to have guidelines, guideposts that flow the conversation in a way that saves you time and doesn't waste your client's time. Like if you don't even want to make it about yourself by not having a script, not having a structure you're wasting even the other person's time. And have we ever heard of the quote like, oh yeah, some annoying salesperson just came in and wasted my time. Your script can actually make that process more expediency. So you might want to consider scripts in a way to save your class's time because you will get more quick to the answer of, is this the right person or is this the wrong person or is this the wrong time? And once you get those data very quickly in the conversation, you get to actually take this in a way that you're not going to pitch something for someone that's not ready because you asked the right question. So I personally like the scripts in the sense that it gives you the key points that you should be crossing as you're navigating a sales process. And so, yeah, you could have it fully scripted. You could have partially scripted. You could have checkpoint. That's maybe a question of style and preference. But if you're just beginning, and especially if we're talking early in the sales process, like an inside sales agent, I definitely think a script is very powerful because you want to be able to lead your buyer in a great conversation. And that starts with powerful questions that you can write down, ask consistently and get similar results. And I love that. And and I think also for anybody who's looking to grow a team, like, sure, like maybe you're great at sales and you don't really need a script and you hit all the right points and you sell, you know, 60% or 40% or whatever, a ton of people, like the big percentage of closings, right? But how do you replicate that? You need to have a replicatable process that you can literally have any person that comes in can know exactly what steps they need to follow in order to get a sale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big thing there is people forget that just because you're good at sales doesn't mean you can just transfer that to someone else. So you have to create a process that's replicatable. Otherwise, you're never going to scale beyond yourself, right? So that's that's something to think for people that are kind of growing the team, they want to build the team, things like that. And then holding those people accountable. One of the things that, um, you know, we can talk about this here in a second, but one of the things that I uh, sort of shied away from for so long with my sales team was doing call reviews and doing things like that. Cause I'm like, I'm not a babysitter. I'm not a babysitter. And, and, and one of my sales trainers actually was like, think about it this way, right? Think about like a professional football team or a professional basketball team. Like what would happen if they didn't have a coach? Do you think they'd win their games? Do you know what, what would happen if let's just say your coach 
uh, got hurt and couldn't make it to that game and was like in a hospital. Do you think he's going to be effectively able to tell you what you did wrong in the game that you lost by not being able to see it? So that's what call reviews are. That's what uh, being able to uh, review uh, calls and, and, and have this processes in place is not because you're micromanaging or anything like that, but they need training, they need coaching. And, and so anyway, that was a, a big sort of aha for me as, as I was building a team was, man, salespeople need accountability and they need uh, leadership. So I, I'm, not, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that too. Well, I mean, I think the idea of having, you know, being a sales manager, yeah, you, you will be a babysitter and, and it's not a bad thing. It's Listen, sales, I mean, for those of you who do it, it's an emotional process. There's a lot of emotions that happen in sales and those can be up, those can be down. And if you're a sales manager, you're definitely trying to do what is possible to keep your sales team as functioning and as competent as they can be. So not only does it come with a layer of emotional management, but then giving them the best tools and the best structure and the best feedback for them to be the best they can be. That's a very different role than being the salesperson yourself, right? Sure. And this is what I hear all the time is the, the traditional top salesperson gets promoted to sales manager. And now guess what? They just don't understand how to bring out the performance of good salespeople to become great salespeople. They, they, this is a completely different skill set. And so the right. sales manager industry is a huge industry. The training for managers to understand how to properly train their sales reps is a huge industry. And it's because it requires attention and care. But it also means that when you take care of it, it starts taking care of you. Sure. I love that, man. I love it. So, so you mentioned emotional, uh, uh, you know, emotional selling or not emotional selling, but you talk about selling is an emotional thing, right? So, and I know one of the biggest keys to, to being a successful salesperson is, is being able to manage your emotions, right? So, um, you know, I, I know your book talks about four levels of emotions to sales. Can you talk a little bit of that, about that and kind of how to manage emotions, uh, you know, in a way that uh, kind of helps you. I don't know why, but I start laughing when you said, how do we do emotional selling? And I'm just thinking of like emotional abuse in sales. I mean, like, it's like you crying. need to buy or you're going to die. Like that would be horrible. <laughs> so I was yeah, like, no, I, no, actually, no. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was an accidental, uh, I don't know, Freudian slip or something. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to cry on a sales call. I promise. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Begging. That's not a, yeah, that's yeah. Not a way to sell. Commission. Um, no, emotion does play a big role. And, you know, in my book, I, I talk about a definition of sales that, you know, I mentioned I had a background in personal growth, so bear with me on this, but then I'll expand further. But I define sales as an energy exchange between conscious beings, all right? Mm -hmm. And I say energy because every other word usually comes with baggage. Energy feels very neutral. And so you're exchanging products and services in exchange for money, money being nothing more than just stored energy, right? Uh, it's greatest invention to allow us to trade better and allow the flow of energy to be much more consistent, practical, measurable, fantastic. You know, a lot of the abundance we see in the world comes from the invention of money. It surprises me still that we have so many blocks around it, but there you go. We're emotional creatures. And sure. as such, when I speak about this equation of energy exchange, emotion actually is one of the components of that exchange. Emotion, energy in motion. Got to do a little play on words. Sure. But in every transaction, there is an emotion, right? And this is where I define further about how do you go from a place where you're selling with love? Well, we have to look at what does it look like when you're not selling with love? And the three other emotions that exist are what I call the rational, sorry, the uh, shame and guilt blockages, the fear and pride paradox, and the rational sabotage. And for those of you listening, this will be very interesting to see where you fit yourself within these different categories. And then I'll give some 
you know, some quick tips that you might be able to apply to get you out of that state and maybe move on to the top state of being selling with love, which is the ultimate state that we want to get in. And I think the best way to start it is just by defining what does selling with love look like so you can feel it when you do it, because it's when you know what you offer is so much more than what you ask in return, right? Like an inner knowing that, my God, I'm offering these loans and what they're, I'm asking return for them to pay is so much less than what they would do if they were on their own, if they were getting the bad product, like you're providing a ton of value and you acknowledge that. So you become relentless, you become excited and you're in a capacity to lead people towards a decision that is providing them more value than what they could do from themselves. That's what it means to sell with love is caring, taking responsibility, leading, loving. That's selling with love. So what does it look like if it's not the case? Well, the first one is actually the shame and guilt blockages. And this is when you have such a negative idea about sales that you just want to avoid it like the plague. You're just like, oh God, I wish I could just be doing loans all day. I hate the sales process. This sucks. I hate right. it. Every time I do it, I feel like I'm a slimy, manipulative person like that Wolf of Wall Street or those other shows where there's these stereotypical cheap suit dudes that are going to sell and they're lying and they're cheating. And I don't want to be one of these people. I want to do better, but sales forces me to do that. And I hate it. So if I can avoid it, I'll just deal with my referrals because anything that would remotely bring me in a position to be like a salesperson is so fundamentally breaking my self-identity that it's painful. Does that resonate with some of the audience, Luke? Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I, I think that's I think that's something that uh, a lot of people have. And I mean, you think about it in, in general, uh, you know, the way people view salespeople and like, oh, sales, uh, like people always have this like weird negative connotation around salespeople. So it would make sense. It would make sense that even salespeople themselves would carry that same baggage with them because like it's basically what's been ingrained in us since forever is like a used car salesperson, right? Like that's that's a super negative thing. Or when you when you say that, like that's like the worst of the worst of slime balls over here trying to sell me because there is the truth is there is slime balls out there that that are using slimy tactics that are you know hard selling people and are doing weird things like that. But you know that's not sales in general. That's just a small subset of people that are you know doing that, right? Actually, it's interesting you highlight that because that's actually the second emotion is what I call the fear pride paradox is when you actually sell but you don't care about the outcome of the sales you make you're actually selling from a place of lacking, like fear. You have not enoughness in your life. There's a, maybe a, a neediness within your own mind. You need to sell. You need to prove that you're better at sales. You need to take, take, take. But the responsibility of whatever you're giving to the people is not yours. You just close, move on, take the monies. There's, you know, in the world, there's what? There's, there's pikers and I forget the boiler room type of reference where it's just like, you're a salesperson, you're the cheetah and everyone else is a gazelle and you got to go take as many gazelles right. out there as possible. That's where I call the fear pride paradox. And here's the thing that's really strange, Luke, is within this model, I don't, I don't take a dig or a stab at the efficacy of selling from that place. It works. It works, but it creates negative repercussions because we want to be you know, buying from someone that's leading us, telling us this is the right decision, has no hesitation and can confidently tell us like, stop, you don't need to worry about the thousands of choices out there because I'm giving you what the one choice is and that's all you need to pick. That is the relief of a pain that most of us experience. And as salespeople, we have the gift of being able to relieve that pain in two ways by truly understanding them and providing them with the best of solution to the best of your abilities that you know is going to offer them so much more value than what you ask in return, that's selling with love. 
or by not giving any Fs about what you're selling, communicating it using processes of sales that sound like you actually care, and then selling it anyways. And that one's a shortcut. And right. that's the problem. There's so many people that choose the shortcut. But what's fun, what's funny about that is when you sell from that energy, there's still that negative energy exchange that happens. And we often try to numb ourselves to that reality, which is why you'll often see those high aggressive manipulative types of salespeople will often have struggles with mental health issues, addiction issues, basically finding activities that will numb you to the reality of what's actually happening here, which is you're not taking responsibility for the sale. There's a negative emotion that gets transacted in every single one of them, and you need to sleep at night. So sometimes the alcohol, the drugs, the gambling, the the sex, whatever is the panacea or the opioid that you choose to not be feeling exactly what's going on often correlates with this level of energy. Yeah, oh, man, that's, that's uh, interesting. I've, I've never thought about it to that, but it was like perfectly said. I, I just think so many times people uh, fit in. I mean, you think about the Grant Cardones of the world, right? Like the people that are like, you know, sell or be sold and da, 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 da. And like, it doesn't matter. Like to them, it's just like, we sell anybody. And I think that was, I think that was, the standard, uh, the standard up until, you know, eighties, nineties, you know, things like that. It was like, that was just what people did. You handle objections, uh, you know, things like that. Whereas like there really has kind of come into the, I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it just was not as, as, uh, in the forefront and maybe this has always been a, a form of selling. Uh, but it seems like it's really come into, into its own over the last five, 10, 20 years is this like consultative selling approach more of the, of the, Hey, you know what, if this is truly what's best for them, then I'm going to, to push them as hard as I can to make a decision. But if it's not, I'm going to instantly turn them away. I'm going to push them somewhere else. And I think that's the difference there versus kind of the, the other side. It's like, and the other problem with the type of selling that you're talking about too, is that also leads to buyer's remorse. It leads to, to people wanting to refund. It leads to people charging back, at least to things like that. And so we've seen this just ourselves um, when we, we're selling even to loan officers that um, you know, when we sell in, in a manner that's just very aggressive like that and closing on one call and just getting real, you know, uh, you know, using the little tactics like, oh, well, we'll waive our setup fear. We'll do something like that. It, it actually creates much more negative energy and they come in expecting like everything. They ex- come expecting the world uh, versus, you know, telling the truth, doing truth telling. You might sell less people, but you're going to sell the right people. There's going to be less refunds. There's going to be less of that stuff. So it's something we I've learned personally over the last couple of years uh, in yeah. starting my own business. So it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, man. Yeah. And listen, like I'm no angel, man. Like in my early 20s, I've done sales that I'm not particularly proud of. And I had a conversation with another gentleman who was in the online marketing space. I was interviewing him in person and we talked about this and I asked him the question because he ended up you know, wanting to make money. He wanted to buy the Rolex. He wanted to buy the Aston Martin. And when he got it all, he realized that this isn't, this isn't what giving me what I was looking for. He kind of stepped back, scaled down, built a whole business around value impact driven businesses. And he's trying to support them pushing forward goals to try to solve big problems that need to be solved on our planet today. Sure. And I found that very interesting. And I asked him the question, do you feel like you need to go down the path of chasing the car and the watch, the things that we feel we need or want with money? success, fame? Do we need to go down that path to experience it ourselves before we can come out and realize that that's not the answer to go towards a better way? And we didn't know. We, we didn't have an answer. There's a part of me that hopes that by listening to trainings like this, you can 
not go down the path as deep to a point of no return that you can gain some awareness from the experience that you're seeing from other people who have went through it. And you can maybe minimize the time you spend there. But really there's, there's something that happens when you do experience it, that you say, wow, I'm going to definitely put my stick in the ground and do better. And in my case, you know, I wanted to go out and start preaching about selling with love. And I've had sales that I've made that weren't from a place of love. And it's kind of in the process of growing up, right? Like you learn by some of the mistakes and then from a mistake that you might find is, you know, really something that is against your values, you might start doing something about it and becomes a foundation of a movement. And in my case, this is it, right? Bit of a sidebar, but still, I think for a lot of people, I would suggest highly to not spend the time in the sphere pride paradox. Realize that it is very helpful to learn the things like sell or be sold because it tells you the processes of you to gain control over the outcomes of conversations you have with people. And I think a lot of us are feeling a little desperate and feeling a little in like non-powerful in a sales process if we don't know the process of selling that allows us to get the results that we want. And in my book, I actually speak a lot about this. It's called Loving the Process of Sales. But in order to truly sell with love, there's three loves you got to cover before. And I have a feeling we'll have a chance to at least list them out so people are aware. But loving the process in and itself can turn you into a very powerful salesperson, but you can be very destructive with that power or you can be very beneficial. And I'm hoping that I'm going to teach everyone to be Jedi Knights, not Sith Lords. (laughs) Yeah, man. Love that. Let's just go through it right now, man. Might as well. Yeah. So um, in essence, there's five loves in selling and I'll, I'll, I'll keep this quick, but you'll, you'll be able to kind of discover more. First love you got to have is love the impact. Like be painfully aware of the impact of every sale that you make. What happens to the client when they decide to do business with you? What's the difference? Now we've come up with benefit lists, feature lists, advantages lists before, but I want you to think from human to human, someone buys from you, what's the impact in their life? And I don't know much about the loan industry, but I'll definitely say the one thing I've already highlighted is you remove the pain of indecision and the regret of the bad decision from their realm of possibility. When they do business with you, you match them with the right product for the right service for their current situation. So you get to eliminate the indecision and paradox of choice from their lives. You save them money and give them options that better fit their lifestyle. They get to not have any of that regret locking themselves in a long-term contract that might come and kick them in the butt if they weren't aware of exactly how it goes down. And you keep listing these impacts being like, wow, when I sell to someone like this is all the things that they get. Well, maybe I need to kick myself in the butt and go reach out to more of these people because these differences make a difference. Right. And what I do is I even expand it further. And I think about the ripple because for every sale that you make, like imagine actually in America is the best example. What does a world look like when a ton of people get themselves into loans they don't understand? And we don't need to go far back into history to look at what happened in 2006, 2007, 2008, where everybody got themselves in loans they didn't understand. And now you had a financial crisis that came across that from a bunch of people that were pushing on loans without explaining the full repercussions of what was going on. So a lot of people found themselves going bankrupt, losing their credits, losing their homes. Well, this is what happens when you have a world of loan officers that aren't taking the responsibility for the sales they make. And I have a feeling you're listening to this podcast and the impact does matter. And you don't want to see that world happen. So one of the impacts you'll see is more people taking sound financial decisions for building their 
asset class, their primary asset class for the majority, which is going to be owning a home. You get to provide more wealth and abundance and a proper transfer of wealth for people that are coming from low class into middle class or middle class into high class by using real estate as a vehicle to allow them to do that. And you make it more accessible to them. You make it more affordable to them. You make it more predictable to them. And if a world looks like that, we're seeing a lot less fluctuations up and down and seeing a lot more people steadily building prosperity. And I think that's a good mission to be on. And that's a ripple that happens with every sale that you make. Your impact for every sale can last 30 years, right? So become painfully aware of that impact so that when you get on a call with someone, you're about to change their lives for the next 30 years. So you're going to serve them like they've never been served before. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think we talk about this off air, but I mean, I think the average, uh, you know, homeowner is I think forty times wealthier than the renter, right? So uh, the other thing too is, you know, uh, you know, we talk about you talk about thirty years, but the average person moves every five to seven years, right? So like, how do you set them up for success for that? Think about what is going to make the most impact for them. What does their actual life scenario look like today? Because sometimes people get so caught up in selling the lowest rate, right? Let's just talk about that for a minute. Like people, people always want to sell the lowest rate. They think that by selling the lowest rate, like by having the lowest rate, that they're just so much better than everybody else. But the truth is, that's not always what's best for the consumer. That's not always what's best for them. Sure, is the lowest rate a lot of times better for them? Probably. But sometimes it makes sense. It may, might make sense because, hey, you know what? They're going to move in three years. So why are they going to pay all this extra interest that they don't need to pay? Maybe it makes sense to put them into a, a 3-1 arm, a 7-1 arm, a 5-1 arm. There's going to be lower interest rates. Yes, if they stay in there longer term, it could potentially affect them. But if there's this idea, you know, there's ways to get around that. And so I think thinking more from like an advisory standpoint at, versus being just like, I'm going to give the lowest rate, thinking that you're, you know, virtue signal to who that you're giving the lowest rate, who cares if that really doesn't matter, right? Like that really doesn't matter in the grand context because no one lives in their home for 30 years. So to say, oh, you're going to save $180,000 by doing this over the, the life of the loan. It's like, well, <laughs> No one actually keeps a loan for 30 years. It's just, it just doesn't really happen. So like, you're not really saving them the money you think you're saving them. And, and maybe you're, you're, you're hurting them because now they're, I don't know, putting money down on something they shouldn't be putting down on. So again, think about it in a different way versus just that, that, that a lot of times people are just so granular or not granular, but so like binary, like this or that, like, well, if I, if I don't sell the lowest rate, then, you know, I'm, I'm screwing the customer and that's not always true. Right. So anyway, just you know, there's there's this benefit that I'm thinking about that I think is actually very relevant to highlight is the more you actually have conversations with people, regardless of they they sign with you or not, if you're doing your job as a loan officer, you're actually shifting people to have more long term thinking. Mm -hmm. Like that's a huge benefit. I feel so many of us are just impulsively deciding day to day without a plan. And a ton of humans running around without a plan or a long-term goal doesn't build wealth, doesn't build assets, doesn't give you, you know, the prosperity, doesn't give you the stability of an entire country thinking in short term will implode. And so whenever you're setting up people to be within a loan that has to think about what am I doing in three, five, 10 years, you're already setting more people up to have more long-term thinking. And that creates a lot more stability. That could be one of your core values and impact that you do what you do for. And so I, I say this as an abstract example, because you can start paying attention to what ripple happens when more people engage with your product and service. And that becomes the fuel to motivate you to get to sell. But it also gives you the answer to the question that most of the people who are skeptical of salespeople ask themselves, which is, why 
are you selling me right now? So hard. And if I would go to you, Luke, and saying alone, just saying, listen, I'm a loan officer because I believe that when people take responsibility of their finances and think long-term, it creates a lot more stability in their life and their families and their communities and as a country in a whole. So when I go out and get somebody to put on a loan, I want to understand what your plans are. I want to make you think further in the future. Yeah, I can get you to lowest rate. Everybody can, but I'm going to make sure you get the rate that you need for the plans that you have. So you don't waste money and you move forward with a plan that you're happy about, confident about, and I'm still going to be here to help you for any changes that happen in your life. That's why I sell. You're already different than most loan officers just with that. Yeah. 100%, man. I, I, most of the time people just start going straight into educating the bar, the the buyers into like what DTI is, what LTV is and all this stuff that like the the truth be told, all it does is is confuse the the consumer. Um, and you know, as we both know, a confused mind never buys. Right. And so, um, you know, man, I love that. I mean, maybe even clip that little piece and say, Hey, this is what you got to say when you're, when you're meeting with people, just say that, say what Jason said. And uh, I think, I think you'll stand out just like that. I want to shift just because we are, go ahead. Oh, there's one thing I think we need to talk about, and I'll be respectful of time here, but this is going to hit the nail on the head. We skipped one of the emotions, which actually Mm. the rational sabotage. My bad. And this is exactly what you talked about is when we become so afraid of taking responsibility for the sale that we just dump all the information on the buyer to let them make the decision. And the buyer doesn't want that. They want to be led. And the example I say here, Luke, makes it painfully aware of the typical conversation meme you will hear between a partners, a man and a woman typically will say to the woman, hey, it's Friday night. What do you want to eat? She'll say, oh, I don't know. Do you want Mexican food? Uh, do you want Thai food? Uh, do you want McDonald's? Uh, I don't know. What do you want? And like, and then we laugh about this, but this is the same way that it happens in sales. It's like, oh, hey, we have a lot of different loans. Do you want an adjustable rate mortgage? Do you want a fixed mortgage? Do you want this? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But flip this around and imagine if on that Friday night, you say, honey, tonight, put on a dress, get your hair done, get your makeup done. I made a reservation to this amazing restaurant. I heard you mentioned that you wanted to go to the other day. We're going to get dressed up, have a great evening and be ready by 7 PM. Cause the car is going to be warmed up and we'll be ready to go. Are you in very different energy? You took a gamble, you took a risk and you took responsibility and you led and where people do this whole, like, give all the data to the buyer, make them decide as a way to make sure that you don't feel like you're one of these wolf of wall street. But the fact is, is you're not taking responsibility for the sale. You're giving it to the buyer and they don't want it. You are responsible for the sale. You need to lead and you need to take chances. And the risk is reduced when you love the client, which is the second love. And you love them by understanding them and serving them by loving the product, which is the third love, which is designing a product that's so good. And even if the product is standardized, the way to differentiate yourself is by the level of you understanding the problems of your people and providing them the solution that's right for them. Your competitive advantage comes from how much you understand and love the client. Then you can love the process of selling. Apply everything you learn on this show. Be curious. Pick up a book like Sell or Be Sold, but come with the ethos that you love the impact, you love the client, and you love the product. Man, that was dope. All right. Well, yeah, let's let's shift real quick. And that was that was sick. I could go on for days on that, but let's get into ta- some tactics, right? I mean, let's give let's give a loan officer, uh, you know, 
how how can they get better at sales, right? I know like, or, or what is it that they can go out there and do? I always like to get land with sort of one sort of thing that loan officers can go out and do today to go get more business. Uh, but in this case, I want to say, you know, what can loan officers go out there and do to get better at sales? Because I think that, you know, will <laughs> inherently help them get more business, right? So, so let's talk about that. When I do my sales consulting, the biggest problem I notice with most people, particularly in a commoditized industry like insurance brokers, coaches, real estate agents, we feel like we all have the same product and service. And so oftentimes you do. And you do. Yeah. I mean, the only difference is you delivering it. Right. And what is another one that most people don't think about that I've highlighted before is who do you give it to? And do you understand them better than anyone else? So I often ask the questions when I go through my workshops is like, okay, define who your target market is. We've all done a similar types of exercise, right? And if you're a loan officer, you're like, if they breathe and they can afford a home, I'll take them. (laughs) Most of the time, yes, 100%. That's okay. I know you're not going to refuse business, but what I might suggest for you to take from this conversation is if you have a target market, like become painfully specific on who you serve. Like I remember for the real estate agency that I, I worked for, they were actually the number one that their their claim to fame is they were the top real estate agents for helping military um, military relocations. Right, we were in Ottawa, so there was a lot of people from the military sector that would relocate, and they wanted to buy a house wherever they would relocate. And that was part of the program. They became the number one realtors to help with military relocations. That was their niche. It was so specific. But there's an anxiety that pops up saying, oh my God, but if I, I don't know if there's enough business in doing that. I don't know. What if somebody comes up and they're like, they're just a first time home buyer. They have nothing to do with, will you serve them if they walk through the door? Yeah. But the fact is when you become painfully specific about who you serve and you design all your marketing around serving them, you're going to attract the fringes too, but you're also going to be the number one in something, which is serving those people. So if you want to be the loan officer for say, um, I don't know. I'll give an example that comes from the top of my head. It could be the number one loan officer for fresh graduates out of the X university in business school. Right. And now imagine with that level of specificity, you're like, okay, well, if I want to do that, well, I could go to that business school, talk with them, sponsor an event, be there at an event, make sure that anybody who graduates from that school have the right education about their first purchase, understanding the loans, work with them, have that badge claim to fame saying you're the number one loan officer for first-time homebuyers, fresh graduates from this university, that might be your target market. And you become so specific that you know where they hang out. You can go and claim, understand them like nobody understands them. So the prescription here is be more listening. And then maybe you're dealing with people that have just went through a divorce and they want to buy their second home. Maybe you're talking about somebody who wants to refinance their home when they're close to retirement. So they understand they're like, there's different problems for everyone that's getting a loan. Pick the one you want and whatever you've picked at your target market, if you had to be more specific, what else could you filter is the exercise I would suggest for you to do so that you can think, oh, I could filter industry, demographically, stage of life, all of that. And the more specific you get, become the best expert at understanding them. That will be your competitive advantage. 
And I love that. Yeah. I think so many times people resist, you know, niching down, right. People talk about it all the time, niche down, niche down. And then people, you know, resist it because you, you think that if you, if you, if you exclude someone, you're not going to get that business. Right. Uh, and for, for loan officers, I think it's, it's easy to, to, to think, well, if I only target veterans and only veterans are going to want to work with me, it's like, no, that's not how that works. I mean, you know, in, in my, in my niche, like I used to work with, I, you know, I used to, I work with small businesses. And then it was like, well, I work with real estate agents. And then it was like, okay, we work with residential loan officers only. Like, and what's funny is that as soon as we made that decision, the business the next month literally doubled in size. Like, it was just funny. This was back in 2020. That was like very big, the first month of 2020, like literally doubled from, from December. This is the month that I said, you know what? I'm done working with everybody else. I, I had health insurance clients, had property casualty insurance, had realtors. I was working with a bunch of people. But the problem is I wasn't able to serve at the level that I wanted to serve, which is why I decided, okay, my background's in mortgage. I'm going to go all in on mortgage. And what it did was allowed me to, to elevate and, and become the expert, but also it, it allowed me to, you know, start to solve problems that, uh, you know, I hadn't been aware of before because I was just so focused on all the different things. And so, you know, as you, you get, you know, if you decide to focus on, let's say veteran relocation people, like you mentioned before, like, you know, what their pain points are, you know, how to speak to them, you know, how to, you know, what, what their problems are and, and things like that. So you can have a much higher level of, of almost uh, empathy for them uh, in what they're going through than, than someone else can. And so of course you're going to attract those people, you get more referrals uh, and you're still going to get the other people too. Uh, you know, because the zone officers, you don't just have to completely exclude. You can you can take all the other people, the FHAs, the VAs, the you know, the teachers, all those people, because hey, you can still help them. They're still you know, a mortgage. Um, whereas, like for us, obviously, you know, it's a little bit different. But man, I love that. I love that niching down. Um, you know, and it's it's a super simple but powerful exercise. Any last words uh, as we're kind of closing out here, man? I mean, for me, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to create a world where more people are selling from this place of love. So when you know what you offer is more than what you ask in return, you know, that makes transactions that helps everybody. You think about wealth of nations, the original work about looking at how a company or sorry, how a country becomes prosperous. And I think it's when more people are doing these kinds of transactions that are just genuinely having a positive emotional call it output from both the buyer and the seller from every transaction that becomes more efficient, more prosperous. And that starts solving some real problems. So I'm super excited for everybody that's on the show that is going to maybe adopt this mindset. And um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be able to share the framework and hoping more people are going to go dig into it. Awesome, man. If someone wants to go find you online, learn a little bit more about you, check out your work, uh, where's the best place to find that at? Yeah. If you go to sellingwithlove.com, you'll find the podcast, you'll find the book, uh, you'll find more about me as well, all the social media accounts, it's all listed there. Just sellingwithlove.com, you'll find everything you need. Awesome, man. And for everybody who's listening, uh, thank you so much. But but I think the biggest takeaway for me today is just understanding that uh, selling, uh, you know, selling with love, selling is love, really, at the end of the day. And I think so many times we we put such a negative spin uh, or, or such a negative stigma behind selling that uh, is unnecessary, right? So understand that if you truly believe you have the best product and the best service uh, for the particular client, a particular person you're speaking to, it is your ethical obligation to do everything in your power to get them to, to work with you. Because truly, if you, if you really think you're better than the Rocket Mortgages or the uh, Veterans United or these guys that you know we know are not doing what's best for uh, the client, then you know, you're basically you know, screwing this person. Right. So, you know, think about it that way, right. You're actually saving them from a worse future that they could possibly give themselves because they don't know any different. Right. So, man, I love that. Thank you so much for being here, Jason. And 
Thank you for everybody for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning into the Loans On Demand podcast on loansondemandpodcast.com. The Loans On Demand podcast.